I think the omission of it too has led to a lot of misconceptions about how how God functions. And you know, I've, I've often heard evangelicals talk about that God was silent from the last prophet until the time that you know God spoke to Zechariah. It's like no. No, that's not how it worked. There's a there's a part of our Bible that's missing that we you know we had in it for you know a long time and then it was it was it was removed from it. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host, and this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carla Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary a historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guest for this week's CBF Podcast Conversation is Kelly Nikonde. She is an author with focus on liberation theology with books such as Defiant, What Women of Exodus Teach Us About Freedom, and newly released book that will be our focus of our conversation today. She also contributes to Red Letter Christians, She Loves Magazine, among many others. Finally, she's the co-director of Communities of Hope. Kelly, thank you for joining the conversation. Oh, I'm honored to be here. So for those that aren't familiar with you, um, what would you want them to know about you? Well, I am a liberation theologian, and it took me many years to be able to comfortably say that, because I know for a lot of people that is an uncomfortable uh, thing to to say, uh, because liberation has connotations of uh, of politics and uh, things like that. But that really is part of how I see and understand the text and the world that I live in. 
Uh, I do community development work uh, in Burundi, which is a small country in East Africa. And that has, I think, in part shaped what I see and experience of the world and um, hard economies, fragile economies, and being exposed to extreme poverty you know, in a way that is, uh, it's not on the page, it's, it's in real time, it's in real life. And, and so many of these people are actually my family members. Uh, my husband and children are, are Burundian as well. Uh, so uh, I come, you know, I live between the United States and Burundi uh, and I'm an author. So this uh, is my third book and I love, I love scripture. It is, it is the anchor. It is, these are the stories that energize me, challenge me, root me uh, in this world. And uh, I am so grateful, you know, that, that the spirit continues to breathe life uh, into these ancient texts. So that's, that's a little bit about me. Well, I guess maybe let's go a little deeper there. Um, tell us, you know, about Communities of Hope, the type of work y'all do, and how people can get connected with it. Well, Communities of Hope is a community development enterprise uh, that we founded in Burundi. We actually have a wonderful partnership with a uh, church in Texas, and we have been uh, working together uh, for 14 years. So they are kind of our foundation in terms of making it possible for us to focus on the work. Um, and we do, there are so many things under the umbrella of Communities of Hope uh, that it, it, it's an it, it's almost embarrassing that we do so much. But my husband is what I would call a, a social entrepreneur. You know, he, as a Burundian, sees and understands the challenges in his own country and wants to be somebody who brings about um, positive change. Uh, and so, uh, and he's just so gifted. So I, I am kind of the book smart. He's the street smart. I'm the, uh, the theologian. He's, you know, the practitioner on the front end of things. So that partnership has really benefited us um, in our marriage, but just also in the work that we do. Uh, we do development work that has deep theological uh, roots. And uh, so we have a bank, which most people wonder, how is a bank part of community development? But in a place where there are fragile economies um, and our economic outlook is connected to the health and vibrancy of families and communities, uh, and God talks so much about economies in our ancient texts, of course, uh, we believe that this is really holy work. And so we have a bank that services over 50,000 people who were previously unbanked, and what we try and do is open up the economy to them to help them get in and have support and learn the basic skills of having a bank account and getting loans and growing businesses. And so we have had people who've been with us for 10 years uh, who have started off with maybe a $50 loan and now we're getting $25,000 loans with multiple businesses and hiring multiple people, uh, their neighbors and we just love the work. So we, we have a bank, we run an elementary school, we have a vocational training school, we have a porridge factory uh, because Burundi struggles with over 60% uh, malnourishment, uh, which stunts both the physical and 
cognitive development of children. And so we found that fortified porridge is the best vehicle. Um, they don't do vitamins in Burundi, but they do porridge. So we now have a factory that produces several tons per week of fortified porridge um, and are working in over 22 communities to feed uh, children. Um, and we have a health clinic. And so, you know, last year we, we did not lose a single mother or child um, in childbirth, which uh, I know we can be very excited when people accept Jesus and go that, and we know that their souls are secure for heaven. But I tell you, it is so exciting to see lives that are actually saved and can live here on earth too. And so every time a mother successfully delivers a baby and, and a little one survives childbirth in Burundi, man, we are so thrilled when we can buy birthday candles and not little coffins anymore. Uh, so that's, that's a, a snapshot of the work that we do. And it's, it's an honor. It's an honor to be able to partner with our Burundian friends. You have a new book, The First Advent in Palestine, in which you invite readers to look deeper into the story to see uh, the work of tyrants and oppressive systems and exploitive economics. You wrote, Advent is the subversion of imperial power. As such, Advent will always confront earthly empires, bringing God's disarmed peace, which arrives like a baby to an ordinary couple in an insignificant town on the edge of the empire. I'm sure like most people, um, this is not the way you grew up seeing the Advent narrative. Um, so what changed for you to see it in a different and more socio-political light? Well, I, I married my husband, Claude, uh, in my uh, early 30s. Uh, and we come from incredibly different worlds. You know, I come from the United States with such, you know, a great, I mean, what we've always thought of a really robust economy and, um, you know, a high living standard and, you know, one of the top, you know, nations in terms of development markers. Um, and Burundi, according to the United Nations, is always in the bottom five. It's, it's considered an, um, an underdeveloped country. And so we had very different experiences uh, not only, you know, the difference between my family and his family, but the difference of growing up in socioeconomic worlds uh, that are polar opposite. And um, I come from a place of abundance and he comes from a place that is shaped so much by survival uh, and being able to just barely make it. And being in intimate relationship with each other, we just, I just learned, you know, that there was nothing I could assume in terms of my own understanding of the world, everything became an opportunity for him and I to discuss what it meant, whether it was how we made a decision about money or how we made a decision about where we lived or where we uh, connected in terms of community and church. I mean, everything became an opportunity for me to learn that there was another set of experiences in the world and another way to understand things. And so I think really, the context of our marriage was my crash course in seeing the impact of, of socioeconomics and, and unpacking a lot of that kind of American exceptionalism that I grew up with. Um, and I didn't know any different until we really started unpacking that together in the context of our relationship. And, and then living in Burundi, living between these two countries, again, has allowed me to experience it in a more visceral way. Um, these are my 
Burundian neighbors and coworkers and family members. And so when you start to see and hear the stories and feel that connection, um, it has changed the way that I see the world of, of the Bible because there is so much congruence between what Burundi looks like now and what I see in uh, the Hebrew Bible and in the gospel stories. Um, I mean, when I was trying to get a better sense of like what the shepherd's lifestyle was, uh, Claude and I talked for several hours because he has uncles who are shepherds in rural Burundi. He himself shepherded uh, for several years um, when he was in school. And, and, and so to hear what is that like? What, is the, what are the cultural connotations? What did it feel like? Helped me get a different lens into what that looked like for the shepherds in Bethlehem. So, you know, it really is that seeing that world up close that has allowed me to, I think, see different things in the text that I had never seen before. You give uh, the critical context that often Protestants miss in the New Testament narrative due to the omission of uh, the Maccabees from, from the Bible. This, of course, is a, a period of revolution in the Hebrew people's history against the tyranny of Rome. It's met with a short period of success and, and then catastrophic defeat. Um, you know, knowing that many people are familiar with this story, especially from the Protestant tradition, wh why is it key to the story of Advent? Well, I'll, I'll get into that from a very personal place because that's actually how it happened for me. Uh, for the last 10 years, I have felt like a bit of an anomaly. You know, I know Advent is a time of, of light and hope and anticipation. You know, that is what I have always known about um, the Advent tradition and what I've always loved about it. But in the last 10 years, I started to feel this darkness as I would move towards Advent. And I felt like, oh no, I'm an anomaly. I'm out of sync. And so I returned to the narrative. Uh, we call them the infancy narratives. I call them the Advent narratives because I think they give us more than just, you know, infancy. They give us other things to think about and, and to be challenged by. So I returned to these stories that Matthew and Luke have given us um, in the hopes that that would recalibrate me and bring me back more into a place of, of light and anticipation and hope. And what I found when I returned to the text was, you know, I, I'm always looking for the context, you know, uh, Jesus and his, the, his arrival into this world didn't just, it, he came into a world, he, he was going to come into, you know, a, a physical set, a set of ancestors. I mean, that, so I wanted to look, well, what's the context? And that led me to the Maccabees, recognizing that uh, Jewish suffering is what predates the Advent stories that we've been given. That before th there was this arrival, there was all this trauma, uh, just generations of Jewish suffering, whether it was with the Maccabees, uh, then we would have the Romans, and of course that's what we're more familiar with is the presence of the Roman Empire, but that this is what would have shaped the imagination and the lived experience of not just his parents, but his ancestors, right? Where there's deep memory and deep things shaped, society shaped by 
trauma, by loss, um, and, and by lament. And so I think finding that in the text was like, oh, I'm, I'm actually congruent with what was happening. But I, but I had to pull it back a bit and realize that I was feeling kind of what we would call that intertestamental period, that, that time that we often don't, uh, as Protestants, we don't, aren't as familiar with that, that part of uh, scripture that uh, our canon drops out, you know, first and second Maccabees and some of these other apocryphal books, but that in there, is the story of, of the struggle and the angst that was the predicate to Advent. And so what I was feeling was actually deeply congruent with the pain and the suffering. And then we move towards Advent from that place of recognizing and naming the injustice and the hardship and the pain. Well, then we, we are hungry for a savior. We are hungry for things to change. And, and Advent right, addresses uh, that deep desire for something different than what we have experienced in the last set of decades. So that's, I mean, that's how I got to those texts and why I think they're important for us to understand that before the goodness of, of God's arrival was you know, all the hardship um, and that lament, you know, naming what was wrong and, and weeping for what was wrong right? It is the predicate to rejoicing, um, right? We always have the weeping and then the rejoicing. And so now I feel like, oh, that wasn't such a bad instinct um, to, to feel the darkness and also be able to then enter into the hope. Yeah, you know, I think the omission of it too has led to a lot of misconceptions about how how God functions, you know, I've, I've often heard evangelicals talk about that God was silent from the last prophet until the time that, you know, God spoke to Zachariah. And it's like, no, no, that's not how it worked. <laughs> there's a, there's a part of our Bible that's missing that we, you know, we had in it for, you know, a long time. And then it was, it was, it was removed from it. Um, plus there's some really cool figures that oftentimes we miss out on, um, exactly. you know, with this oppressive context in mind, why does it give the idea of Advent as a season of waiting and an anticipation um, a broader definition? Well, I think that when we are honest about the terrain uh, in, in Palestine at the time, or Israel-Palestine, whatever nomenclature is you use, when you recognize you know, that there was political strife and economic duress and uh, confiscated land and indebtedness and all the trauma related to those things. I, I, the more that I would read the historical, you know, and, and while I meditated on these texts for two years, I also was right reading the history. I was reading Josephus and other historians about what was happening around these stories, what was happening in the world, well, it actually felt deeply relevant to what is happening in Israel-Palestine now, what is happening in Burundi and East Africa now, even things that feel reminiscent of what we are struggling with, you know, here in the United States, these dynamics of uh, uh, the struggle with indebtedness and the, the hardship of our economic outlook and uh, somehow going back 
and paying attention to, to the hardship in the text made me see more clearly, well, we are still struggling with that same hardship now. And so these stories have, have continued resonance and continued words of challenge and goodness for us. Uh, so, you know, it's, uh, I have been reading a lot in the last set of years on um, trauma-informed theology. And again, it was one of those things that how did we miss it? You know, now I think we, we have in popular vocabulary, more understanding of, of trauma. When we are traumatized by an event, um, be it personal or collective, um, that, that trauma does things to us, to our brains, to our emotional emotions, to our capacity uh, to respond. Um, and, and now I think, oh, well, I know some things about what trauma looks like in a society. And now I can look back into the text and say, well, of course, you know, uh, Joseph and Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah were traumatized people from a traumatized collective experience. And that that would have factored into who in their humanness they were and how they responded to their world. And, and I, I just think it cracks it open uh, for me to see, I don't know. I don't know if I've gone too far afield. I mean, answering your question, but. Hey, you're the guest. You wrote the book. You go as long a field as, as you want. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. Did you know that CBB offers every participant an opportunity to create a comprehensive financial plan with a certified financial planner at Empower Retirement, free of charge? Learn more about completing your financial plan at churchbenefits.org backslash financial planning. As an incentive for our ordained participants, CBB will apply $500 to your retirement account when you complete a financial plan. It's a small, grant-funded way we can invest in your future. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefit services, and financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. You followed the critical figures within Advent, um, you know, just, you know, beyond Mary and Joseph and, and Jesus. How did the, the figures of, uh, of Elizabeth and Zechariah give shape to the narrative you've written? Well, I, it, I had never felt a connection to Zechariah before. I mean, of course, I knew the story, and as I said, as somebody who's always loved Advent, uh, these this was part of the narrative. Uh, so it wasn't that I was unfamiliar with with Zachariah, but I had never felt a real kinship with him. 
And um, it was one of my early challenges in writing this book as I knew I wanted to really look at these different men and women in the story and started off with Zachariah. <laughs> and I was so wonderfully surprised. And, and this is right, the goodness of meditating on scripture. And one of the places where I, see, I still see the spirit so active uh, is in the way that, that the spirit will crack open parts of a story that were, you know, kind of dead to me for years. And then it, it you know, comes alive when the spirit kind of breathes some new lens, some new understanding. And I, for me, seeing Zachariah as an ordinary priest was revelatory for me. So I had always been taught, of course, that he was a priest, but I don't know a lot about priests. I mean, you know, we have a general sense of what that means, but uh, in reading, uh, it was really the work of Richard Horsley, uh, who talked about uh, what is an ordinary priest and how is that different from a high priest or, you know, and when he talked about how an ordinary priest was bivocational, they didn't earn enough to have financial viability. They, they always had to do things on the side to supplement their income. And of course, Herod made, Herod really politicized the priesthood um, in a way, he accelerated that uh, dynamic in a way that we hadn't seen previously. Uh, and so Herod had made the, the apparatus of the priesthood so much more precarious. And that with his politicizing of it, and that would have been felt by low level or ordinary priests like Zachariah. Um, and so that kind of cracked open my imagination. And, and it's like, wow, so Zachariah would have not been disconnected from his people. He wouldn't have been off in the temple all the time, like right, recognizing, no, he would have been in the fields working with people at the harvest. He would have been you know, uh, at the wine press, helping process the grapes and, you know, pour the, the fresh wine into, into jugs. He would have been in the thick of all of it, the, the hardship of the economy, the hardness of the work. He would have heard all the stories of his neighbors, um, you know, sons that were thinking of going north after the harvest to try and, you know, maybe make a buck or two uh, on a building, you know, because Herod did a lot of building and love to put his name on things as it were. And so, you know, well, maybe we can go get a job up North after this and stories of people about to lose their property. Like he would have heard it all. He, and, and it, it helped me see that he was not just ever praying for just himself and Elizabeth to have a son. If he was a good priest and, and we're told by Luke that he was a righteous priest. Well, then he would have had the weight of his community as part of his prayer life, right? He would have been praying not only for himself, but for his neighbors who didn't have enough to eat or for his, um, you know, the family who, who's about to lose their property or if he, and, and it really changed my way of understanding that he was a man of his time, um, that he was also a victim of uh, that economic insecurity, that he would have carried the weight of his neighbor's problems alongside his own. And that his prayer life wouldn't have just been for him, but would have been for his whole community. Um, and that really allowed me to see him in such a different way. And I, I really fell in love with him. Um, and 
And I think his being struck silent, I mean, I know even the, even the text says that, you know, it was kind of punishment for him not initially, you know, saying yes and understanding and accepting what, uh, what Gabriel was telling him. But I almost think it was a blessing. It was not so much a punishment because then Zechariah was given the opportunity to be quiet and listen when his wife and her relative, young Mary, were having these amazing, innovative <laughs> conversations about this new thing that was happening in their bodies, right? Like maybe a priest would have been the one doing all the talking and the women would have been listening, but because he was struck mute, he had no choice but to listen. And then here's this young girl from Galilee, staying with them for a couple of months, talking about these things happening within her. And he's listening to these two women in his life explore the stories of scripture. And we, I just imagine he must have been so amazed at the reservoir of wisdom in the women. Um, and had he not been forced to be silent, he would have missed the opportunity, I think, to learn from them. Uh, so I, I don't know, I just look at his story now and I have such fondness for him. And um, yeah, that, that's, my, that's, that's my connection to, to Zachariah and of course, Mary and Elizabeth living, you know, in that same beautiful little town. It's called Ein Karim. It's a gorgeous little enclave right outside of Jerusalem. Um, and, and every time I go now, I, I always travel to Ein Karim and just think about the kind of conversations that, that those women had and that he was privy to. Uh, during those three months. Let's talk about Herod, uh, a puppet ruler of the Romans that notoriously brutalized the people while attempting to sway the religious ruling elite by rebuilding their temple. And as you alluded to earlier, politicizing uh, the religious office. Um, Herod to me speaks of the you know, probably gives a thousand sermons, uh, you know, of content on the marriage of the American evangelicalism with um, conservative politics. Um, am I am I wrong in projecting that connection and seeing similarities? And if not, then then what parallels do you see in our modern world? Well, no, that's the one that that is front of mind for me. Uh, and you know, Herod uh, was always trying to curry favor, whether it was, you know, I want the favor of, um, you know, Caesar and the elites in Rome. I want the, I want the favor of the Jews. I want them to accept me and see me as fully Jewish, you know, and, but in that hunger for wanting all of that approval was really this, this deep insecurity. I mean, at least that's what it looks like for me, somebody who was also at the same time, pretty insecure. Um, and, and that does not seem unfamiliar you know, to some of the, the political leaders that we've had in the last set of years who, you know, want attention and want affirmation, but, but there seems to be, uh, you know, this, this insecurity that is, is underneath it all about who they really are and if they were to be truly known for who they are. Um, and Herod was somebody who also loved to put his stamp on things, um, and he did it, did it with his building um, initiatives. So, of course, we know about him rebuilding the temple and wanting to expand the porticos and put on new towers and really in a, you know, he wanted to, to get the Jewish people to see him as legit. 
but I think there was also the sense that I want my, I want my stamp on this place, on the holy city. And he also built, you know, up in the north and he built, you know, huge things uh, like a, we, a Herodium is a, a fortress, um, looks like a mountain uh, outside of Bethlehem, a part of his, you know, kind of security surveillance apparatus there. But, you know, he built huge things, whether it was, you know, a fortress that looked like a mountain or um, re refurbishing entire cities or the temple. Um, and he put his stamp on it. He didn't put his literal name on it, but he put his stamp on it. And boy, if that doesn't sound like somebody we know who loves to put his name on everything, right? <laughs> like, like you almost could, you, I, I think you really have to try to miss the, the connection um, between, between the two. And of course, you know, Herod's cruelty is also not um, unlike, you know, the cruelty of, you know, that, that, that person as well. Um, the cruelty shown to uh, anybody who, who doesn't see the world his way or doesn't swoon at his, at his word and, and his uh, presence. Uh, there is a cruelty about him too. So I, I mean, I can't help but see the, the similarity. Well, I mean, let's follow that a little deeper. I mean, it's fascinating for me. And again, we find these examples throughout history. And, and certainly, you know, I don't want to cherry pick from the side and think that mm -hmm. anybody who's moderate or progressive doesn't always, you know, or doesn't have cases of doing this as well. But it does seem a bit frustrating and maybe even ironic that, you know, the people that claim to hold the Bible in such high regard can't see the parallels of uh, the dangers of, of marrying, of, of marrying, um, you know, their politics and their religion and, and what that can entail and who that exploits as a result of it. Mm -hmm. No, I, I agree. And I, you know, and I hear, right. I hear because I have people in my own family who, who see things differently than I do. And, you know, they would look to different parts of the text, right. They would look to, you know, rulers from the Old Testament. And while I have problems with some of, you know, even exegetically, <laughs> some of those, some of, the, some of those thoughts, but, you know, yes, the hard thing is we can sometimes uh, see what we want to see in the text. Um, but I just feel like you can't miss, this one to me seems so obvious, you know, and, and the part of what we're being shown is that I, I think, you know, um, the, you know, the Pax Romana has already been inaugurated um, at the at the time that Jesus is born into the world. You know, they're they're already you know a couple of decades into Caesar's peace, and so so one of my questions was, well, why was this the time and this the place that God would want to enter into the story? And I I think it is my sense is that. God wanted to critique Caesar's peace and say, you think this is what peace looks like with all this violence, with, uh, with the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer with um, all like, this is what you think peace looks like. Like, I think, you know, um, God was critiquing what we think peace looks like mm. uh, that even the peace that we strive for 
if we so imagine it to be like Caesar's peace and then celebrate that and call Caesar prince of peace and call him, you know, then that we are, we are missing the mark that we need to, in a sense, be recalibrated to see peace differently so that therefore we can become peacemakers um, in that direction. And I, you know, even that to me is like, wow, you think peace looks like, you know, this political strong man. You think it looks like, you know, the, the guy who has all the bravado and who, uh, like you think that, or, or who can strong arm others uh, to do his bidding or like, that's what you think goodness and peace looks like. And I, right, I feel like this story is like, no, that's not what it looks like. I'm gonna show you something completely different that is worth striving for and, you know, uh, joining God's peace campaign. But um, that's, that's just how I see the text. <laughs> Well, and, and on top of that, you know, the Pax Romana was a time of peace for Roman citizens and right. those that were in the upper echelon, not for those that, <laughs> that didn't right. get to experience. It was for the haves, not the have-nots. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly yeah. the people in, you know, in Palestine were the have-nots. Absolutely. Let's, uh, let's take a look at some of the other implications. Um, and of course, we can't consider the Advent story without talking and thinking about the implications for today, which we've kind of been thinking about from a political standpoint. What are some of the key themes from, from it that directly parallel to our world and, and circumstances today? And I kind of want to look at some of these specific things I know you, you wrote on. Let's first look at uh, the economic implications. Again, I think this is something that might be surprising to us when we revisit uh, these Advent stories is that they actually are really heavy with economic language or the expectation that we would see that the economy is a huge character in these stories. Uh, you know, when we hear that Joseph and Mary have to travel south for a, to register for a census, you know, I mean, I always, with my American ears and modern ears, thought, oh, census, they're just going to be counted to be represented. And again, doing the historical work, I was like, oh, no, they're, they're actually being counted so that more can be extracted from them. Caesar wants more. He wants to know how much more, right, blood he can get from these turnips. He wants to extract more. And so somebody who was aware that there was a census underway and it's said several times in the story, you know, and it makes me think that that was probably front of mind as Joseph was traveling down, you know, that long journey to Bethlehem was things are already bad and they're about to get worse economically for us. You know, we're like, this is, this is bad. And there was such an awareness in the text of, of how hard the economy was and how it impinges on families. Um, Joseph and Mary arrive down to Bethlehem and, and they, they stay with family. And of course, right, there's this sense that family always makes room for you, at least in these kind of cultures. And I, I would say that I learned that from my time in Burundi as well. No matter how bad it is, no matter how small the compound is, there's always room for, for family. Um, they may not always have a really great room or a bed, but they, they can be in the compound and be safe, um, right? Like these communities under duress um, there still is this deep sense of solidarity and hospitality that operates um, almost in a kind of a subversive way, no matter what Caesar is dictating up top. So my sense is that they knew that they were going to right, reconnect with or you know, have their family 
down there waiting for them, that there would be room for them. And, but they were all struggling economically. You know, this was, this was not going to be easy for any of them, all of them packed in and living on top of each other. And, um, and I, I just, it, it makes me think about how we don't talk about the economy during Advent. Well, we talk about it in terms of commercial, right? We talk about what we want to buy for people for gifts, or we talk about how much we're going to spend, <laughs> you know, to kind of get the house ready to host. Maybe our church actually does like a Advent conspiracy or something where we, you know, think, what can we do for our community during Advent? But we, but then Advent comes and goes and the campaign is done. The gifts have been given. We're left with those bills to pay. But what bothers me is that we have not really been transformed in how we think about the economics beyond the holiday. And I think that this story pushes me to, to recognize that part of what is being named here is that this is a really bad economy. Like this is not a good economy for anybody to live in. And so what if part of the, the Advent challenge to us is to, to think differently about the economy? And again, it's something we accept. This is just the economy. It's the way it is. This is the way peace works. This is the way the economy works. Um, some people are going to do well. Some people aren't going to do well. Uh, we have a lot of that bootstrap economic thinking, you know, um, we were able to pick ourselves up, those people ought to be able to pick themselves up. And, and yet, I think this, this story at least pushes me to think, maybe it's not just doing a nice campaign, you know, during Advent at our church, let's say, I know churches that have done like water projects, you know, where they care about, you know, they, you know, maybe are going to do a wet, raise money for a couple of wells for a community in Africa. Well, that's great. Uh, let me tell you, our, our friends in Burundi need clean water. But what about the water issues and access to water, you know, all year round? Because, you know, in, in the West Bank, there is a real challenge to have access to clean water. Uh, in Gaza, we are at the place where there's almost no clean potable water available for an entire entire region of people. Um, if you look at you know Flint um, here in our own nation and other Jacksonville, other places in our own country that are struggling with access to clean uh, water, all of a sudden you're like, well, what if you know we actually cared long term about you know this is water and access to it and the economic, uh, parts that are connected to that access and saw that as something we cared about all year long and started to advocate for better uh, policies around this or policies around food. And I know in my neighborhood, uh, the kids, uh, my kids went to an elementary school here and half of the, over half of the student body were eligible to receive free lunch, uh, free breakfast and lunch. And I remember thinking, wow, like, that means half of my neighbors are food insecure right here in Arizona. So yes, I should be giving to the food bank during Advent, but maybe I should actually be advocating for better food security and food access and better policy around that all year round, right? Because I'm thinking Advent has shifted the way that I think all year round, not just as a season. 
So I think that, you know, that to, again, to me is part of the thinking differently is that Advent isn't just the season. We read these texts in a season, in a, in a ecclesiastical calendar. But Luke and Matthew didn't write these stories for us for a particular, you know, month. They wrote that this was meant to challenge us all year round. And I, I wish that the lessons of Advent, you know, thinking differently about the economy and thinking differently about what makes for peace and thinking differently about solidarity, that these would be things that needle us all year long and that these texts would needle us all year long, that that to me would be more in keeping with the Advent legacy. Unfortunately, you know, we're recording this in October and I think we're, we're posting this around Advent because of course we want to promote the book for people to buy, to be contemplating. So the election season will have come and gone by the time uh, we air this episode, but uh, whoever is elected doesn't mean it's the end of people's participation. So what, what implications do you see from the Advent story and uh, people's work and advocacy um, and fighting systemic implications that we see from the story? Well, I, my perspective over the last set of years has, has really been to vote with my neighbors in mind. I don't know if that is necessarily <laughs> what, what, what you're asking, but um, you know, I grew up in a household where I was taught that you vote with, with our, meaning our family, our pocketbook in mind. You know, that we sit down and we make choices based on our, what's going to work well for our household who is advocating the kind of policies that will make us more secure, make us richer, make us uh, you know, add to the goodness of, of our life. And I grew up in a middle-class, um, probably an upper middle-class family in Southern California. We, we were, I now know, already living better than most. You know, um, Of course, I didn't know that at the time, but I know that now. But I was taught, yeah, this is what you do. You vote with your own economic spreadsheet in mind. And now I don't vote that way. I vote with my neighbors in mind. And here in Arizona, you know, my neighbors, as I said, at least half of them are food insecure. A lot of my neighbors um, have, you know, issues when it comes to immigration and documentation. Uh, a lot of my neighbors um, are struggling with student debt. Uh, yeah, so I look around and think, well, how am I, can I calculate what is needed in leadership? Not for my own individual self-interest, but in the interest of the community with which I live in, like widen that lens. And, because I recognize that if things are better for my neighbors, it will be better for me too. Like, it, the, it, you know, I will be more secure when they're secure. You know, this is what um, Desmond Tutu talked about when he taught us about Ubuntu, you know, that I am because you are. I am going to be more free when you're more free. I am going to be more secure in this community when my neighbors are more secure in this community. And I, so the last set of years, I really pay attention to where, like where it's hurting in my, in my neighborhood. Um, and try and, and learn what, what those challenges are and then write what the perspectives of the various leaders are, the candidates. And I try and vote for those that I think will do best by my neighbors. And, and sometimes that doesn't mean that my tax bill is gonna 
be the victor, you know, if my candidate of choice wins. Um, I've learned to say it's okay if my taxes are a little bit more, but I think that that, that money is being spent better for the sake of my neighbors. Like I'm, I really have changed how I think about voting. Um, definitely that it's important, um, but it's important to think about my whole community. And I think this is a bit of what like I see in Zachariah. He wasn't only praying for him and Elizabeth and their well-being in having a son or a child. He would have been praying with his whole community in mind. And that is how I, that's how I want to pray, but it's also how I vote or attempt mm -hmm. to vote. I, you know, we are given imperfect options. I recognize that. And I, but I, that is at least what I attempt to do in my, my own practice. It's fascinating. You brought up, um, kind of, uh, the collective we mentality that we see really everywhere outside of, uh, Europe and America, um, mm -hmm. which is a very individualistically driven society. I'm actually doing a good bit of doctoral work right now on the implications of our individualism as it affects um, our perspective of others, more specifically the church and why our churches are so divided right now is mm -hmm. most people, uh, the church is a commodity to them. And typically the church and culture are a microcosm of themselves. And we do live in a remarkably individualistic society and it has its uh, upsides, right? Innovation, creativity, um, you know, achievement, those kinds of things. But then we see the downside is that typically if anyone, you know, lives out a collective we, it's for whoever's in their particular tribe, um, mm -hmm. whoever, whoever their, you know, their group is going to benefit from and so hard to see. And yet should be second nature to Christ followers in America to think mm -hmm. that the collective we is to consider, as you said, um, our neighbor. Um, how do you imagine uh, churches using this resource, um, you know, locally ministers? Uh, how, do, how do you see it being used? <laughs> oh, wow. This is, this, now you're pushing outside of my area of expertise uh, in that I'm not a pastor. And so uh, how this lives um, in the hands um, of pastors and how they would break this open and make it um, accessible to their congregations and make it uh, you know, like let it shape uh, is a little bit beyond what I could speak to. Uh, I spent some time, uh, we did an initiative that we call, I called Advent in August. And I met with about online uh, with about 12 different, I remember maybe it's about 14 of us, uh, different clergy from different uh, denominational backgrounds. And we met for four weeks during uh, August. Um, and each time I invited somebody different. So Brian McLaren came and talked about uh, preaching. How would this book help you think about preaching during Advent? And, and I had uh, Episcopal priest, uh, Amy Peterson, talk to us about how might this help us think differently about um, liturgy and the way we shape our prayers and songs and, and times of worship. And, you know, so I tried to invite in other people who could help answer, you know, break that open in a way uh, that, that maybe I couldn't do as faithfully. And um, it was really, I think one of the ones that was so interesting is listening to Amy Peterson talk about liturgy, you know, that if we have this understand, this very different understanding of Advent, it actually creates room for us to incorporate lament into our advent, you know, that not to rush 
to conversations about light, but to allow us to open up spaces for darkness where we can lament uh, losses. They can be personal and collective losses. And a lot of the pastors we spoke with on this call said you know, that they, their congregations had suffered various kinds of losses, either losing a, a church matriarch in the last year to COVID or um, losing um, the ability to gather for so many months because of COVID. Like that, there was such loss and you know, the thought that, wow, maybe we could bring that into the Advent space and name those things and create liturgies, prayers, um, opportunities to, to, to name those things that, that, that still harass us and hurt us. Um, and before we rush to, to shedding light on it to allow us to be together in the darkness and name these things. And there, there seemed to be a lot of energy around, yeah, we, we need to create those spaces, even in Advent, um, that before we rush to light, let's actually engage with the darkness. And you know, she, she also brought up, which I loved, the idea of Zachariah as, you know, Zachariah representing right? The, the voices that we expect to hear, that we are supposed to hear, um, versus the, the people in the story that we never, never hear from and aren't supposed to hear from, right? Women, a young girl, um, an old barren woman, like, right, we're not supposed to hear from these people in society. And, and so she said, what if Advent, we created an opportunity in our churches where we, we centered the voices of those we don't normally hear from, even in our own congregation. So you hear a little bit less from the pastor. You hear a little bit less from the worship leader, right? But you hear more from that, that woman who's that faithful prayer warrior who, who, who we all know her, but, but she doesn't usually get pride of place to be able to lead or to say or contribute. Or the children who we often, you know, don't, we see them in their youthfulness, but we don't give them the space to contribute in more vibrant ways. And what I thought it was such a beautiful challenge uh, to think how we could kind of take that dynamic between Zachariah and Mary and Elizabeth and say, how do we embody that um, and create space for the voices we don't normally hear and allow the voices that we hear too much of to, to be silent for a season or quieter for a season. Um, that was a little more of a challenge to the pastors on the call, right? <laughs> but I, I think these are the kind of things I, I loved hearing from some of my friends on how to think differently about embodying some of these lessons. Um, so, but again, this is where I trust. I tend to write from a more descriptive and less prescriptive. So I would like to describe what I see in the text, but I don't really prescribe how I think you should necessarily choose to then live in your congregation because of it. This is where I really do trust that the work of the spirit continues, you know, that you would read it and my friend Amy would read it and Brian McLaren would read it, right? And they would, they would all find different ways that the spirit would kind of quicken their imaginations to how would, will this, how will this be a, a good tool in my congregation or my community? Um, that's beyond what I know. <clears throat> so I hope I've described these stories well um, and, and trust that the spirit will then allow the various pastors and clergy and, and church leaders to be able to see how will this instruct 
or open up some new vistas for our Advent practice. It's the best I can hope is, is that the spirit will continue the work. Well, I think you answered it perfectly. And, and to add, you know, for ministers listening uh, to this, uh, it's, it's, remarkable content for sermon preparation alone for, for the season of Advent. Uh, and, and that'd be a springboard for many people who maybe don't know where to start, starting with spiritual formation and then transitioning to something that might lead to some action within your congregation. Um, well, our guest is uh, Kelly Nikondeha. Uh, the book is The First Advent in Palestine. Uh, if you want to stay connected with Kelly, uh, you can check out our website, uh, K-E-L-L-E-Y-N-I-K-O-N-D-E-H-A.com. Um, unique spelling of Kelly, unique last name. So I figured I needed to spell it out for everybody, right? Um, <laughs> Kelly, it's been a joy speaking with you. Thank you for calling us to not accept the status quo peace, but to seek to be the incarnation of God's peace as we live in this complicated world of suffering and injustice. Perfect. <laughs> Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study title, Faithful Curiosity, Five-Week Study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support. 